Hello and welcome to the BMJ South Asia podcast. I'm Cameron Abassi, Executive Editor of the BMJ. Welcome. And today we're going to be talking about the very important topic of conflict, extremism, resilience and peace in South Asia. How can the region use COVID-19 to provide a bridge for peace and rapprochement? And we published a paper on this very topic uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I have two of the authors with me today. I have Professor Zulfikar Buta, who is the head of the Institute for Global Health and Development at Aga Khan University in Pakistan. And I also have uh, Dr. Arun Mitra, who is the Senior Vice President of the Indian Doctors for Peace and Development. Welcome to both of you. Welcome and thank you for inviting us, comrade. Namaste. (laughs) Namaste, Arun. You're more than welcome. So let's begin. We know the region had a mixed time with the pandemic um, and it's been a a dangerous time for for, for almost every country in the world. Um, What we want to talk about specifically, though, is how all of the events have interplayed with attempts to bring about peace uh, in the region. So first of all, um, Zulfi, uh, if I could come to you. Tell us what the situation was in the region from your perspective before the, the pandemic struck. So I think the region, as we've mentioned in our preamble, already had significant issues, which the pandemic, as any other humanitarian crisis, has unearthed. So the fact that the pandemic has been associated with rampant poverty, particularly amongst the poorest of the poor, Uh, is a reflection on the enormous inequities and uh, widespread poverty in the region. Uh, That's not new. It just pushed the poor to become ultra-poor and the ultra-poor to even fall below that uh, in a relatively short period of time. It also exposed the weaknesses within the health system, the nutrition system, the food system, and importantly, the education system in the region. Uh, And some of those disparities were just compounded. I'm going to give you an example. A lot is made of how, for example, um, remote learning or or internet-based education systems have been able to overcome some of the school closures in South Asia post-pandemic, which have been the longest, uh, among the longest in the world. The reality couldn't be further from the truth. The truth truth is that Most of these children who are in rural populations or even amongst the urban poor have no access to those educational opportunities, the learning platforms. And as a result, the disparity in some of this education gap has grown. I mean, estimates from India talk about uh, the gap that may emerge from this pandemic in learning gap of being several years. Some people are even talking about four to five years or more. And it is probably the same in other countries of the region, although that data has not as yet emerged. So my point is that the pandemic did not bring about, other than the direct deaths associated with COVID-19, anything new that we could not have predicted on the basis of already weak health systems, weak education systems, tremendous disparities that exist, and the widening gap between the rich and the poor in many parts of the region that have been a relatively recent phenomena of unequal development. Hmm. So, I mean, I I would say India has some of the billionaires of the world 
And that is possibly one of the reasons why in many places, the average per capita GDP grows up, goes up is because the rich become ultra rich. They pull the rest up, whereas the poor at the base remain where they are or even fall below it. But I must say, Kamran, one thing, though, that this is by no means only a phenomenon of South Asia. Mm. And that in other parts of the world also, we have witnessed and seen similar disparities underlie a lot of the adverse outcomes associated with COVID-19, including the UK. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, inequality has been probably the most prominent feature of this pandemic. Aaron, tell us from your perspective, um, how did the pandemic affect the situation in India? Well, as Dr. Zulfikar has pointed out, the problems in South Asia are similar in all the countries. Mm. India has already been poor, large number of people, they are below poverty line. During this pandemic, uh, the worst thing that happened, that was migration of the people from their workplace. Because the work suddenly stopped, they had no jobs, no means for livelihood. So many of those who had shifted to big cities, to the metro cities, in search for jobs, and they were having a better life than their village, now they started going back. So there was a reverse migration. They went back to. And during that, uh, there was no support for them to transport. So there are thousands of people, including children and the elderly, who had to walk hundreds of miles on foot or on their bicycles or on rickshaws for such long distances. That created really havoc for them. And many died on the way. Some of them who was who were uh, walking on the railway tracks, they were crushed by the railways. I mean, this thing happened. They were very sad state of affairs. Even though uh, there was a demand was raised that uh, those who are in urban areas, they should be given uh, seven thousand and five hundred rupees. You can uh, you can convert it into. I think it would be around seventy pounds or so. Uh, per month for about six months so that they can maintain their life in these cities because that would have helped the economy also. But that was not done. Uh, so the people had to go back to their villages where also there was no work. And on the way, they were not treated very well. So these had, they had, uh, the poor people, they had a very tough time. The same thing happened with the middle income group people also because when they lost their jobs and all, and their wages came down, there was, they are also having a difficult times. As Zulfi has pointed out that uh, some people got very rich. Some of the, the corporates, their income increased by one and a half times. They became further billionaires. So that wide gap occurred. Of course, then the mismanagement during the COVID there, were, there could be two reasons. One is that it was a sudden phenomenon. Nobody expected, the, especially the second wave, it, that it would be so disastrous. There was not yeah. a good management from the side of the government also. So the so many deaths occurred. Even the government reports that there were 4 lakh deaths, 400,000 yeah. deaths. But the private circles say that the deaths were many more times. So yeah. these problems we faced a lot and the nutritional deficiencies yes. and of course yes. all these. Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're, you're, you're painting a very clear picture 
picture of, um, on a background of widening inequalities, um, inadequately functioning health systems, um, COVID essentially wreaked havoc and disproportionately affected the poor in society as it inevitably has uh, around the world. But just to focus a little bit on 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 this issue of conflict, extremism, and peace, um, the background situation in South Asia wasn't an entirely settled one in any case in terms of regional no, I mean, harmony. Uh, so we was have it, had virtually incessant, I would say, conflict, insurgency, uh, and uh, uh, its consequences in the region for decades now, as you know. If you look at the Western part of South Asia, Afghanistan, poor country, has been in turmoil for upwards of almost four decades now. There is a whole generation, maybe two generations, that have seen nothing but conflict, displacement. I mean, it's a chronically traumatic Mm. stress, exposed population that now has intergenerational consequences of this. On Pakistan's side, it has affected border areas, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, Balochistan, and and as a manifestation of the conflict around it, some of it has been just a spillover of this, and the other has been, frankly, insurgency, terrorism. In other parts of South Asia, we have seen similar phenomena of uh, of conflict in border states. Look at what's happened to the poor um, uh, Myanmar refugees, Rohingyas, who have now been displaced for almost 10 years now, and uh, have no hope of getting back. So the region is no stranger to conflict <clears throat> that typically arises, Kamran, as uh, several social scientists and anthropologists have put it, out of a sense of deprivation and social marginalization of large sections of the population mm-hmm. who see no hope in the current existing system and then would want to change it yeah. by force. So the Taliban, for example, Pakistan did not grow out of a an yeah. organized system per se. They are basically representative of the grassroots people who rebelled mm-hmm. against a traditional feudal system. Yeah, and and they they typically are not uneducated. So <clears throat> what we are witnessing in the region is is an excess of poverty, marginalization, and and a sense of hopelessness in a section of the population that then decides to take up arms and decides to follow a path of least resistance in terms of trying to get from A to B in the minimum possible time. More often than than not, they're wrong, but that's the way nature goes. So the region, I think, has paid the price for a lack in investment in human development. The region has Mm. also paid the price in not having far-reaching future-thinking politicians yeah. would see the benefits of the dividend of peace for the region. Yeah, I mean, it's a region where you have nuclear technology. Arun has spent a, a lifetime fighting for a nuclear-free South Asia, and I've written extensively about it also. Why? Mm. Because although, yes, it has maintained a sense of balance of, of let's say, you know, consequences of uh, um, um, avoiding conflict on both sides in the traditional way, but it's also diverted resources. Just to finish, Kamran, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the region yeah. has had one of the most, I would say, asinine conflicts over the last three decades on the Siachen Glacier. It is a fight mm-hmm. over nothing, of, of a piece of ice that nobody owns, 
and it has caused so much in terms of diversion of resources the amount of money that is spent mm-hmm. on just keeping people there uh, just facing off each other is enough to pay for the entire primary care program in afghanistan gosh gosh yeah so, i mean you know so we yeah. talk about stupidity aaron those those uh, <laughs> those factors that zulfi mentioned there uh, that 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 lead up to the conflict that caused the conflict presumably some of those are also at play in the in the difficult you know pivotal relationship between india and pakistan i mean clearly if we were to solve that relationship in terms of making it more peaceful and cooperative then that could be a way of moving forward in the region <clears throat> i think by and large the people are not against each other they are they want to be friendly <clears throat> we can see it while traveling to each other's country we find that how the people welcome and otherwise we have seen that uh, when there was crisis of a pandemic here they were a positive demonstrations in lahore that they were ready to help india and so here also mm-hmm. a group of people is always ready to help when there is there were floods few years back in pakistan we had come up yeah. with a statement that we are ready to help so i mean the common man wants to live in peace it is the problem is with the polity or with those who want to maintain their power or the fundamentalist forces who want to maintain their power by hook or crook mm. they want they spread wrong information to the people misinformation to the people and they try to raise the parochial feelings and that really is was so the problem the issue is that if we want to ease the situation we have to improve the people to people relationship more and more dialogue amongst the people so that misconceptions if any among the people they have to be removed the mistrust between the two countries that is really are causing a lot of damage that mistrust has to be removed we are from the same ethnic group same people my family has migrated from multan and there are so many who have mm-hmm. migrated from my city to that part of yeah. of the world yeah. so yeah that mistrust can be removed if we have better people to people relationship and in the present times i feel that the digital dialogue can play a big role at this moment yeah how did the lack of cooperation uh, across the region affect the pandemic response do you think i think it affected the uniformity of uh, coming up with evidence informed evidence based appropriate solutions early enough as arun pointed out mm. there were diametric differences in the way we responded uh, very early on to the shutting down of businesses etc india went through a very painful process of people traveling by road or on bicycles as he mentioned hundreds of kilometers so many people died once the urban poor trying to move to rural populations once uh, their daily livelihoods were were um, uh, affected uh, pakistan took a decision which had the opposite effect i mean in the sense that you know people stayed where they were we could have learned so much from each other earlier on in terms of how the zero surveillance and how some of the monitoring for uh, for uh, the um, um, virus and its impact at population level went uh, i think we could have been much better prepared mm. in the region in terms of the outbreak with variants and genomic testing had we got everything together yeah i think some yeah. of the learning around education 
I, I feel very strongly that, you know, the region has taken a totally opposite re response and reaction to what they should have done for education, particularly early education, even though the evidence was very strong that this was not a problem for very young infants and very young children, actually, mm. who go to preschool and kindergartens. How could that have been avoided? We could have had a platform where that, where that exchange took place. So there was a token meeting mm. at the leadership level in Salk very early on. Uh, which led to, uh, you know, some volunteer fund, as we have mentioned in our paper, uh, of a few million dollars. And that too was underspent because SARC as an organization uh, really, in my opinion, has, has functioned much below par. It has really not been able to facilitate the civic society to interact and work together. And therefore, we need a, a mechanism to strengthen SARC, of course, and to make it functional. Uh, as, as a regional platform. But I think we need to also empower civic society organizations. As I mentioned this morning, this morning was the first ever nutrition consultation across the region by all countries of South Asia in almost 18, 19 months of the post-pandemic. Mm. Can you believe that for a region yes. that has yeah. almost two-thirds of the global burden of under nutrition? Mm. Mm. First, for the first time getting together, and that also because of initiatives outside of the government sector. So yeah. I think a lot can be done, Kamran, yeah. and a lot can be done by having a platform for dialogue and exchange. And that's why we, the authors of this piece in the BMJ, recently upped the ante to call for a standing commission yeah. that would work on peace and rapprochement through evidence and through work on public health and nutrition in the region. Yeah. Uh, Zulfi, I'm going to come to, you started talking about the, how, what we might do better or, or mechanisms to improve cooperation. I'm going to come to those in more detail in a second. I want to pick up po a point that you made about education, and I just want to clarify what you're saying. Are you saying that the region, because there were school closures across the world, are you saying and they were controversial everywhere. But are you saying that the region might have taken a different view simply because of the, the level of poverty, the level of disruption, the level of isolation, the level of inequality um, that, it, that the school closures Absolutely. would cause in the region and the, and the kind of health you know, knock-on impacts? Do, 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 do say more. Absolutely, yeah. Comrade. Yeah. And I acknowledge failure on my part as well to persuade the Pakistan government to do otherwise. I made several appeals and, and uh, uh, outreach to our own management groups extensively over the period of this pandemic to say, look, you have to do a risk-benefit assessment. You have to look and do a cost-benefit assessment in the long term of taking away the once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunity from young children in a formative few years of their development, which will never come back. You know, for a four-year-old or a five-year-old in the early education system, Kamran, that is not something that you can do on a television. Yeah. That's not something that parents can do effectively at home, especially if they're busy. So, you know, it fell on deaf ears in the sense because people were scared. What's going to happen if they get infected? What's going to happen if they bring the virus home? The evidences from where we collated and eventually synthesized and published is that there was no risk of increased community transmission, even during the Delta wave of children being in schools that were open. If anything, 
making sure that those children were in schooling systems and educational system where there were no alternatives, including some adaptation. So, you know, the region could have adapted much faster and better than other places because we could have for rural populations where the risk was always lower. We could have had open air schools. Mm. We could have had systems whereby children could have been in shifts. We could have done so many things, but we didn't. And as a result, therefore, everybody's now talking about this learning gap, yeah. which gets compounded over time. Let me give you one stark example that I think we allude to in our paper. Adolescent girls. Yeah. The region already had a problem, Kamran, of girl marriage, underage marriage, marriage before 18 years of age. Roughly about 20, 25% of all first births are in that age category. So we have had issues across the region, not necessarily in the most populous countries only, but also you know, in other, in other uh, countries uh, of, of South Asia with girls getting married early. One of the best risk factors for girls getting married early is not being in school. If they're in the education system, mm. as the experience has been in Bangladesh and others, that's the best, best lifeline you can throw a girl for, for, for her education and her economic development and empowerment. What happens when you have a 16, 17-year-old out of school for two years in the middle of a pandemic? Families have no recourse in many places, especially if they have to work and have got a young girl at home to think of how they can stabilize things. That's been also the experience in a most educated community of Syrians who migrated out of Syria to the neighborhood in Middle East, that their age at marriage amongst their young girls went down. Why? Because this is something that is human nature. And in South Asia, what has happened is that I think we have got close to around, in our estimation, 450,000 first births in excess first births in young girls who have dropped out of education systems forever. Gosh, that's a remarkable number, Zulfi. Gosh. Um, that's across the region during the pandemic. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, Aaron, you, you want to come in? Yeah, and uh, another thing that we have witnessed is the increase in the child labor. Hmm. Many children who were going to school earlier, after these schools were opened, they did not come back to school. When the schools approached their family that, why are you not sending them to school? They said that our children have joined some work because they were sitting at home for so long hmm. and the family had no source of income. So as there is light opening up, the, they have joined the work, so the child labor problem also increased, which we have been fighting for long that okay. they should be in education, not in labor. Okay, okay. I think it's clear that there was some, you know, horrendous impacts on children here, and then they are, they are detailed uh, in your paper. I think if anybody's interested, we, we should read the paper. There's lots of uh, detailed facts and, and and figures to support these arguments. I want to turn now to the. You, we began talking about solutions. I mean, you both mentioned some of them. Aaron, first of all, to you, if we look ahead, as you do, I think very sensibly in your paper, um, um, if we're talking about building back fairer, which I think is the phrase that I like the most about how we should build back, um, is the phrase Michael Marmot coined. Um, and I think you say we need to do it fairly, sustainably and peacefully. Um, Aaron, of the and you've list four particular initiatives. Aaron, would you like to talk? Which ones do you think are the most important? Looking, uh, looking ahead, as to how we might to expect yeah. too much from the government side at this moment may not be correct. 
but the civil society must come forward we should uh, explore our is dialogue with the neighbors as i said earlier that we have lots of facilities of the digital dialogue these days mm-hmm. even though there are restrictions in traveling uh, earlier also there were restriction at the visa problems but nowadays through several uh, platforms we can have digital dialogue amongst each other mm-hmm. like we are having now today yeah Yeah. this can help a lot in alle- in alleviating the uh, the misconceptions about each other secondly the health programs they should be interlinked there should be a professional groups in addition to the civil society groups uh, the professional groups they should be encouraged to hold uh, to hold joint conferences a joint webinars or the seminars that will bring them together I mean, near to them, near to each other, that should be done. And uh, if the time comes, then there should be people-to-people exchange program also moving to each other place. And we should then grow our strength to impress upon the governments, which is a hard task, uh, to open up the things, the travel restrictions, the visa, and all. All these things have to be done. Uh, but there's a hard task at this moment. Uh, the things are not so good. but uh, i think the digital dialogue in my opinion can be of quite use in the present moment okay i think that's interesting as a you know i i was born in the region but i no longer live there i mean when i when i look at it i think i mean you've highlighted two of the major problems you know, the political and the media discourse that creates so much difficulty across the region when you say to me civil society can be a solution i get that cuz you know i meet people um in in my day to day working from the region who absolutely want to cooperate and work together from civil society and from professions and i get the point about digital media aaron but is it really possible for those mechanisms to overcome the the, the ridiculous power that that resides in politics and in the media at the moment how do we counter that and we have to grow our strength only then if we have better relations with each other through the civil society then we can use the you see not all the media is bad there, yeah. there is a section of media which will help us in promoting uh, the peace dialogue amongst mm. each other and spreading the positive message also we should use that media yeah. i think media we should not blame all the media is not bad no, no, of course in large <laughs> section of the media you're, you're with the media at the moment good. we're not all yeah. bad <laughs> so, yeah. i mean I, and i and i agree with that i mean yeah. so i didn't mean to imply that all media yeah. is bad but you know a lot of mainstream media is yeah. and you know unfortunately on the jingoistic side so comrade i think one lesson that we've learned from the pandemic is that and sometimes you know to my utter amazement as to how much can be done by virtual technologies having zoom teams those uh, platforms have allowed people to mingle exchange ideas talk to each other work with each other in many many more ways than it was possible yes absolutely okay so i mean dialogue will help focus more on things that unite us and work together i, I get that if we can make it happen it seems a very a good way oh, with to... only exception being the the cricket matches i mean there i thought i wasn't going to mention cricket in case aaron got upset because of you know recent events okay um but let's, let's look at some of the other um, proposals that you have i mean the, one of them is empowering women explain how that works 
So maybe I can have a shot at this uh, and then I would love to hear from Arun. So we made that recommendation deliberately, not just because there is such a gap on women in power, in, uh, in influence, in positions. We have a lot of tokenism around here. So, you know, uh, we have a few women who have risen to the rank of prime minister, but that does not mean that women have the rights and empowerment in society. Mm. Uh, if you look at the, the issues that confront uh, South Asia, you will find that women's rights, empowerment, lack of education, lack of opportunities underlies a large proportion of those issues. You know, we talked about yeah. undernutrition. Yeah. The relationship of undernutrition with maternal undernutrition is strong and maternal undernutrition is tied to so much that impacts. There is a reason why the impact of many global issues like climate change, like economic shocks are disproportionately felt on women. Hmm. So why am I mentioning this? Because I think it is global experience that to have more women around a table, to have more women as part of the dialogue, to have more women as part of a peace process has always facilitated things. Women are better peacemakers. Yes, They understand yes. the value of this to generations and to their own children. Secondly, we have so few of them that we would like to nurture and produce leaders from much more uh, in the base. And, and I think it will serve as a good wedge to open the door in many ways to the kind of dialogue that typically on track two mm -hmm. has been dominated by men. Yeah. As track yeah, two yeah. has been dominated by former bureaucrats, former army people, mm. we need much more women engaged in that space, in responsible positions, in journalism, in arts, in media, in culture, in science, yeah. to help take that forward. Okay. Arun, your okay. views on this. Yeah. Well, I think the women have to be more in number in the decision-making bodies. Unless that happens, the things may not change a lot. Uh, in, in India, say, in the local bodies, there is 33% reservation from, for the women. But some of them have now really started asserting. And earlier, for some time, they were sitting in the meeting as a proxy, or even sometimes their husbands, they went instead of them. Okay. So that patriarchal value existed, but now it's changing with that. Yeah. Then we've been demanding their representation should be increased. It should be reserved in the assembly and the parliament too, mm. because only then they can be. The patriarchal values, they are still existing in the society. They also have to be fought back. Yeah. The, uh, 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 this patriarchal you see, mindset that is still existing, yes. even among the women, they also accept that it is a patriarchal system. Yeah. That has to be changed. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. but it's, down it's to quite an effort, but we yeah. have to do it. It's down to the men to change it, though. I mean, obviously, the women need to you know, come forward, but really, men are the ones that are perpetuating the system. Okay, I, I think that, that, that's, a, that, that's a clear argument. Um, another point is around, another action that you propose is around revitalizing SARC. Um, and then creating key partnerships. Perhaps you could explain a little more. Some people may not know what SARC is. Just explain a little more, a, a little bit about SARC and why these partnerships are important. SARC has been in existence for quite a while now. I mean, it's the South Asian Association for Regional Co Cooperation. It was supposed to create a common market and uh, provide opportunity for the region to grow. Uh, you know, it's had... Uh, gosh, about 1920 summits. It was established uh, in uh, 1985. 
So we are coming now to uh, close to around almost three and a half decades uh, or more of SARC being in existence. Um, its objectives are noble, economic growth, promotion of people's to people contact, welfare, self-reliance, cooperation outside and inside and uh, economic, social, cultural, technical, scientific field collaborations. But if you look at the practical side of it, it boils down to and the two major, or I would say the three major population hubs in the region leading it, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, because that's where the bulk of the population is. Uh, the India-Pakistan conflict or political uh, differences have paralyzed SARC because uh, over the last, I would say, 10 years or more, uh, there has been really no tangible activity because that platform has been, because of its rules of business, uh, has not functioned because it required consensus on a on a lot of procedures. It also sits in Kathmandu, uh, and I think uh, it sat there for a variety of good reasons, including neutrality, but it also makes it a little bit remote and distant from decision-making process. Someone has got to revitalize SARC with the injection of not only more resources, Kamran, in my opinion, but there's also a lot more energy a lot more drive, a lot more innovation, a lot more courage in terms of personalities who are willing to take the chance of asking people to stand together and sit together yeah. and put their differences aside for a better good. That's why we thought that the experience of COVID-19 would be so instrumental because the whole region has suffered so much in this process yeah. together uh, with economic and health impacts and nutrition impacts that people might put their differences aside to say, what are the common learnings from this, how we can move forward? I want to finish by just mentioning that SARC is also a platform for us to come together to help those in greatest needs. For the yeah. last several yeah. months, the poor people of Afghanistan, I'm not talking about the government of Afghanistan, I'm talking about the poor people of Afghanistan mm. are on mm. the verge of starvation. They've had their entire economic supply cut off from a situation where they are dependent to the extent of 75% of their entire budget on external assistance. All of that has been cut off. Winter is here upon us. And there are people who are anecdotal reports of people selling children in order to ensure that they get fed and, and they themselves have the resources. It's a, it's a horrible tragedy in which, why look upon the globe to help Afghanistan? Some of us in the region in SARC, where Afghanistan is a member, ought to be doing a lot more for that country yeah. than we are at. So this is really where I would like to see us go, is to see a more effective platform. Good. So thank you. Uh, Aaron, anything to add on SARC? Well, I think uh, to revitalize SARC, the problem here is between India and Pakistan, mm. that the SARC is not getting vitalized. Sometimes I feel that if Bangladesh and Nepal are also we bring in Afghanistan. If they assert on both the countries, maybe we could do it early. Otherwise, it will go on lingering as it is and nothing may come out because SAR can be of big use to the region in terms of economic cooperation and cultural cooperation, education exchange, all these things. But for that, if we depend on only Pakistan and India, then probably it will not happen. The other countries, they have to assert that yeah. SARC has to be active. Yeah. Yeah. If they do that, 
say uh, the Bangladesh government is positive in many things, in in many ways. Mm-hmm. If they assert, probably. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think the probably. the argument for that would be would it Aaron that um, India the conf- the conflict between India and Pakistan is um, a disruptor, harmful for the whole region. And if there was better cooperation, then that's going to benefit Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka. It's going to give the whole region a lift. Is that right, Aaron? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 I think so. I think so. Because if India and Pakistan, they are having better relations, then the things can be yeah. sorted out yeah. better. And some, somehow we have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, okay. And, you know, that sounds I, difficult. I know we're yeah. running out of time, yeah. Ramran, but the fact is, look, not that long ago, we had great hopes of rapprochement and mm. of building confidence and moving together. Mm. Musharraf went to Delhi. Vajpayee came to Lahore. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. not ancient history. This no, happened in the really. recent past. Yeah. Yeah. So when, I mean, you know, I mean, and Modi stopped over in, uh, in, in uh, Pakistan also. Mm. Yes. So, you know, these things can happen and can change virtually overnight. It depends upon political wisdom yeah. and for people to come together to say, can we make that leap of faith? Yeah. Can we trust our people to move forward? Because if the alternative is stupidities like undoing partition or nuclear annihilation of the opposition, then I don't think we have any future as a region at all. But I don't think that's the case. I think civic society is smart enough to see that our future lies in living and working together. And that yes. can only be in peace. Sophie, thank you. I think that's a, an important sentiment to finish on. Aaron, any final thoughts from you? Well, my um, only lie at the end, I will say we shall overcome all these issues. <laughs> yeah, I think we can. No, we have to have that faith. Is that right, Aaron? We, we, yeah. Yeah, we, we should be incorrigible optimists. Only then Absolutely. we can see it. We we have grown with that optimism. Yeah, and I think we'll continue it as long as we can work. Great. Well, listen, it's admirable that you both of you are advocating for this, uh, given the, the the political situation. And um, I think it's a very important paper. I'd urge anybody who listens to the podcast to go and read the paper. I hope it's influential. I'd like to thank my guests today, Zulfikar Butta and Aaron Mitra, for joining me. That's it for this podcast and almost for the year. Next week, we'll have a festive talk evidence diving into the BMJ's Christmas research. And you'll also hear from our editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, who sits down to talk all about her career before she departs the BMJ at the end of 2021. As always, that will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.